Thanks, Sandy. Please, no one has to call me dad except for Sam, who has already gone home. It's weird. People are sending me text messages like, hey, dad. It's like, I'm not your dad. It's just weird when you do that. Uh, but, you know, Beck and I are so thankful for our church community. We really are, um, over the last few weeks, really felt the love and the support from the text messages, you know, uh, all the sentiment that people were sent through, the gifts, and also, uh, and maybe particularly uh, the food, um, all, all the meals, um, just to help us in the transition period. It has been, um, I guess it's not been straightforward because transitions are never straightforward. It has been uh, difficult at times, but because of the support of the community, we have felt um, very capable of handling and moving through the season and say so Sam is getting more and more settled. Yes, so for those who don't know, his name is Samuel. He is five months old. Um, and we do know that there are other Samuels in this church as any Christian community does. That's too many Sams. So we have given him a middle name. His middle name is Joab. And it's Joab because Joab means Jehovah is my father. And we thought that was a really cool middle name to give to this young warrior. Um, and so because of that, we have also planned that you can call him Sammy J, Sam J, S J, Samuel Joab if you want to. Um, and, and, and yeah, but I think at the moment my favorite is Sam Boy because he's just a boy and he's Sam, so Sam Boy. It's like those chips, you know, and so because of his ethnic mix, which um, is all over the place, we're calling him Honey Soy as well from time to time. He's our little chip. And... Um, and he will be spending more and more time with the church family as he settles into life. And uh, he's doing well. He is strong, healthy. Um, we've had a, a doctor's check, uh, the health nurse, the child health nurse. How amazing are those child health nurses? Like, I half, this half of the room, like, uh, uh. <laughs> but they, they're like, yeah, you know, we're like, you know, he's doing this. Like, yeah, that's fine. He's doing this. Yeah, he's fine. Yeah, yeah. That is like, this is the things that you can do, etc. Anyway, great. He's doing well. He's strong. He's healthy. And um, yeah. And it's really good to be back here in church. I know that we are coming in um, at a time that um, nationally there is a lot of um, stress um, and there is a lot of anxiety around um, the coronavirus and what is happening there. We have sent out an email to our heavy lifters about our response. And so just basically is keep your hygiene up. And um, just be mindful, especially for those who might be a little bit more vulnerable because of different things um, that, that, that um, makes them more vulnerable to uh, a very bad cold. Um, so be mindful of that. And we have also uh, told people who we know have traveled that they do need to follow the guidelines that the government has put out in terms of self-quarantine. But we do also want to support them. And so um, if you are available and, you know, people that are coming back from trips and being told to self-quarantine, uh, you know, they need to still get groceries. They still need to get meals. And so maybe as a church family, this is one way that we can come alongside them. And so you can always let us know if you are available for that, you will want to. And we'll be in touch when we uh, hear back from our church fam that are coming back from wherever they might be coming back from. Anyway, I get to finish off our life series. I know the series has gone um, uh, for a while, but I think it's so important to camp and to understand the life that Jesus gives to us. And this comes particularly from John 10 verse 10, which says, uh, where Jesus says that he has come that we can have real and eternal life, more and better life. I know that we say this all the time, uh, and maybe it's like, oh, come on, let's go on to a different verse. But it's like, come on, if Jesus said that this is what I'm giving to you, then shouldn't we want it? 
And shouldn't we understand what it is? It's like, what do I do with this life? What does this look like? How do I pursue it? How do I live it? Well, that's what we've been exploring over the last seven weeks. We're finishing off today because we're heading into uh, some really exciting weeks as we've been talking about. And then Easter is around the corner. And then after Easter, I just have to share this because I think it's so exciting. As a church, we've never done this before, but we are going to be doing a uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, walk through the book of Mark. We want everyone to understand the gospel. We want you to understand how to read the Bible as well. And so we're taking the time to do a very different kind of a series. It's actually going to take us three months uh, to cover all of Mark. Um, there will be a couple of little breaks because of Mother's Day, etc. Um, but overall, take about three months because we want to know the Bible. We want to know Jesus. And what better way to do it than to study the Word of God, hey? And so that's coming up. But today, we're talking about life final week of life uh, series, not the final week of life. That sounded really ominous with um, uh, the pandemic that shall not be named. Let's turn to Matthew 16, 21 to 27. If you got it, say got it. Got it. Awesome. Someone must have read my notes and knew that was coming up. Matthew 16, 21 to 27, from that time on, what is this time on? Jesus had been talking to his disciples, Ernie actually spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And they said, you are the Messiah. So they had this understanding, right, that Jesus is the one that is supposed to bring salvation, he is God's plan for redemption. They have realized this. Jesus had quizzed them. They got 100% on that quiz. And so from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Let's just pray as we start. Dear Jesus, we pray that your word it brings light and brings life to us. We pray for open hearts. We pray that we are ready to receive. Holy Spirit, come, minister, and do as you will this morning. Amen. You see, in this passage, there is a verse that's also quite key to us at Lyft. And that verse says this, What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? When Beck and I planted Lift Church, this was the key verse. We looked at Vic Park. It was a prosperous town. Uh, we, we have people that are wanting to start up businesses. There's always new cafes. There's always new ideas. There's entrepreneurship. There's innovation. There are people that are starting their careers, starting their family, starting their life. There's so much excitement here. And that is what we wanted to see. With the pursuit of all of these things that the world gives to us, are people really prospering? Are people really prospering? Now, I believe that God wants us to prosper. 
Jeremiah 29, 11, we all know it. For God has plans to prosper us and give us a hope for the future, right? That is what God wants for us. But are we pursuing the right kind of prosperity? That is something that we need to consider. See, I believe that there is a shallow prosperity that we can pursue or there is a deep prosperity that we can pursue. And pursuing a shallow prosperity will leave you forfeiting your soul. But if you pursue this deep prosperity, you will end up with this enrichment. You will end up with this sense that, that, that your soul is filled and that is what we want at Lyft for people to experience. And that is what I want to explain to you, this sense of this shallow versus deep prosperity so that you can pursue a deep prosperity for yourself. And we're going to do this by going back into uh, Israel scripture, as they call it, or the Old Testament that other people call it. And then we're going to come back to Matthew 16. Is that all right? So we... Uh, well, not we, I was, maybe you are as well. Uh, I'm doing this Bible plan that is taking me through the Bible this year. And I was reading through the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch or the Torah. And basically it outlines the story of the Israelites, God's people. And they are uh, promised by God to have this place called Canaan, the promised land. But before they got there, there was a time that they were in 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Many of you know the story. This is the book of Genesis. At the end of Genesis, we find the Israelites in, um, in Egypt. They're in slavery. And then Moses comes along. Maybe you've seen the movies. And uh, Moses brings these uh, plagues uh, with God's power that, that leads to the Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And through the Exodus, uh, the Israelites travel through the wilderness, which is literally a desert, and they make their way to the promised land. And that is, uh, you know, what is happening through the first few books of the Bible. There's a few incidences that happen along the way. And at Numbers 14, they actually reach the, the border of the promised land. And so Moses sends out 12 spies. Some of you know the story. And with the 12 spies, 10 of them come back. And, and actually all 12 of them said, the land is amazing. In fact, they needed two people, two grown men, to carry one cluster of grapes draped over their shoulders. Can you imagine how heavy and how prosperous the land was, right? They said, the land is prosperous. Isn't it amazing that God has promised this to us? But then 10 of the 12 then went on to say, as much as the land is prosperous, it is guarded by giants. And we look like grasshoppers in our own eyes. We don't think that we can do this. In fact, we believe that God has led us all the way to the promised land for us to be killed by the people of the land. That's literally what they said. And so the people grumbled, the people were fearful, and they said, no, God, we are not going to go to this land. And so God pro uh, pronounces a judgment upon the Israelites saying, well, if you guys don't want the land, you're not going to have it. As, that's, think about that for a moment. The promises of God are yes and amen. We read about that in the Bible. But it doesn't mean that you can't reject it. When God says that you can have prosperity, it doesn't mean that you automatically get it. When God says you can have wisdom, it doesn't mean that you're always wise. When God says that you will have joy, it doesn't mean that you always have joy. When God says you will have peace, it doesn't mean that you always have peace because you can reject it. The Israelites rejected God's promise choosing 
fear and doubt instead. And so God said to them, none of you are going to enter into the land because of that. Now the Israelites then got really, uh, like, I don't know, regretful of their doubt. And then they were like, okay, God, you know, no, no, don't reject us. We will go attack the land now. Read about us. Numbers 14 is crazy. And so Moses is like, don't go. Don't go, guys. God is not going ahead of you. You've missed that opportunity that God put in front of you. But they were like, no, God, God said this out promise. Let's go get it now. They went in. They got completely like lost the battle. They, they ran away with their tail between their legs. And they're like, oh, no, we stuffed this up. This is the worst. And so God says that whole generation of doubtful Israelites were going uh, to pass and is the next generation that would then enter the land. So they go through uh, the wilderness for another 40 years in order for that generation to die off before they can enter the land. Keep that in mind. And why it's important for us to keep that in mind is that many scholars, many theologians believe that the story of the Israelites and the Exodus is actually a shadow and a type of our Christian life. All of us were slaves to sin. Through God's power and might, we are then brought out of slavery through what Jesus did. We were singing about that. And then we go through this uh, exodus and we go through this journey towards the promises of God. That is the Christian journey. That's mirroring the Christian journey. And so when you read about what happens to the Israelites, it's actually sometimes warnings. It sometimes paints a picture of what could be happening inside of us as we make the exodus and as we make the journey. And so that was Numbers 14. So I've given you like a brief overview of a couple of books of the Bible. Pretty good, hey? And now we're at Exodus 21. I'm going to read to you verses 4 to 5. So they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. There should be a scripture up there, if, you, if that's the one. Awesome. So that's what they said. I want you to look at that closely. With what I've just explained to you, seven chapters ago, their journey through the wilderness should have finished. Should have. God did not take them out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, except that they rejected the promise of God. The reason why they were walking around the desert was because of their doubt and their fear. But yet they had forgotten that somehow, and they had arrived at this place where they said, and they doubted God again, and they struggled with God again. And I want to point out this last little phrase, and we detest this miserable food. What is this miserable food? Because he just said there is no bread and there's no water. So what is this food that they're talking about? That food is actually God's provision for them. Every single day as they traveled through the wilderness, except on the Sabbath day, when they woke up with the dew of the morning, there would be this layer 
on the ground and they called it manna. It was literal bread from heaven. When they ate it, they said it tasted sweet and of coriander seed. I have no idea what that's supposed to taste like. But that was something that appeared every single morning as long as they were in the wilderness. And on top of that, God caused a whole bunch of quail to dive bomb their camp every day so that they would have quail to eat. They had bread and they had uh, meat every day as they traveled through the desert. They had God's provision and yet they came to this place as they were traveling through the wilderness because of their disobedience, because of their doubt. And they said, we detest this miserable food. I want you to just think on that for a moment. A little bit later, we are going to read this verse, which says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I wonder how many of us have to look a little bit deeper into ourselves and ask whether we are asking this question, we, uh, we detest this miserable food. What am I talking about? The fact of the matter is that every single one of us have been given divine food. It is not manna that appears on the ground, but is in the written word of God that has been produced and available to us. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We have this as our daily bread, but yet there are Christians, myself included, in certain times of my life where I have looked at the word of God and I thought that it was dry. I thought that it was boring. I thought that it was irrelevant. I thought it was too difficult for me to be able to chew through this and I have said to it, I detest this miserable food. Wow. I'm wondering how many of us take the word of God, which is meant to bring us light, it is meant to bring us life, and we consider it miserable. When in effect, God has provided. When we think about the promises of God, sometimes it's very easy for us as humans to mistake what was divine, what was nourishing, what was fulfilling as miserable. Isn't that interesting? So the Israelites continued to complain. They complained because they did not realize that God was already providing. I'm wondering how many of us are missing out on nourishing our souls because we look at the thing that is meant to feed it and we don't recognize its power. We don't recognize its, its ability to bring peace and joy and life. How many of you are actually reading your Bible regularly? Nowadays, it's easy. You get an app and it reads itself out to you. There are ways to get this into you. But yet, are we doing it? Are we, I'm not saying this to anyone. I'm just putting this out there as a challenge because when I look at my life, I can definitely see seasons where I look at God and I say to God, God, this is... This is miserable. When you're reading through the laws, and I just did that, by the way, and you're reading through Leviticus, and you're looking at all the sacrifices, and you're going like, this is just miserable. But the more I read, and the more I understand, and the more I study, the more I go, wow. Maybe you're just not chewing on it enough. Maybe you've just gotten so used to the fact that someone on every Sunday will take this and take a few little verses out and pre-chew it for you so that you, like a little baby chick, just get this regurgitated food and say, that's good enough for me. Do you know that I can't wait for Sam to get off his milk feeding? 
I can't wait for him to not have to wake up in the middle of the night because all he has is milk right now. I can't wait for him to have solid food so that his stomach is settled so he can actually sleep through the night. And for us as human beings, it is the same. As adults in the Word of God, how many of us are still just wanting regurgitated milk when we are supposed to go on to something so much more? Let's challenge ourselves to grow in the Word of God. That was a bit of an aside. That wasn't a whole message, but I think somebody needed that. But you see, the Israelites were still in the wilderness because of their disobedience, because of their lack of faith, right? And so they're still in this place and they're still uh, traveling around, waiting for the moment that they can once again enter the promised land. And that time hadn't come yet. And there was all of this that was happening. I'm wondering whether we lose sight of the promises of God, the abundance of God, because of our current situation, because of our current appetites. As we continue reading on, God actually explains himself as to why quite often in this wilderness experience, the Israelites did not seem to have enough food or water. In Deuteronomy 8, 2-5, this is what it says. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Now, when I read the word discipline, quite often I think punishment. But understand that discipline and punishment are completely different things. A discipline is boundaries. It actually is just boundaries. When you live in the boundaries of God, you are living in God's discipline. When, when, let's say I'm an athlete and I'm disciplined, does it mean I'm punishing myself or does it just mean that I put certain boundaries around my life so that I get to live in a certain way? I'm not going to eat fried chicken every single night of my life because I want to be able to run. I want to be able to jump. I want to be able to grow my speed. I want to be able to grow my strength. That is discipline. God's discipline for us is simply boundaries. And as a dad uh, with a child that is living in my house, I give him discipline not by spanking or by giving him a timeout. But even at the age of five months, he is receiving my discipline. He is receiving a sleep schedule as much as we can impose on him. He is receiving food when it's time for food. He is receiving stimulation so that he can learn and he can grow. He is receiving nappy changes because he is learning that poo on your butt is not a good thing for the rest of your day because you stink. And so you need discipline to know that a clean bottom is the way of a normal human being. He is learning how to live according to our boundaries, which means that we are bringing discipline to his life. Why we bring discipline into his life is because we love him. We want him to grow. When God gives you discipline, it's often around your appetites. God's discipline often hits up your appetites. Look at what it says. It talks about when they were hungry. When they were hungry, What was going on? It was a test 
because God was providing boundaries. When you are hungry, learn that God is able to provide. How many of our appetites are leading us rather than being boundaried by God? How many of us are chasing things in our lives because they seem to bring us fulfillment when they actually are simply shallow prosperity? How many of us are looking for affirmation, for people to bring acceptance, for a place of belonging, for someone just to say, I love you, for that significant other that will completely change my life? I love saying this to young people because they don't know it, because they don't read the Word of God, because they think it's miserable. But did you know that when you go uh, into uh, eternal life, there's no marriage? You know, people, literal girls have come up to me after I've taught that, and they wanted to kill me because they said, no, no, no. Marriage is forever and ever and everlasting. No, I said, marriage is till one of you dies. Literally. That's the literal. Till death do you part. You have been parted because of death. And in eternal life, Jesus actually teaches, man will not be given to woman in marriage and neither will woman be given to man in marriage. There is no marriage in heaven. But yet sometimes in our life on this earth, we think that that significant other is going to bring us fulfillment till eternal life. Why is it that that relationship, that appetite for that kind of relationship, that expectation, that hunger for that picture of life is able to lead us in all the decision-making that we make in a day-to-day life? It determines our communities and who we reach out to. It, re- it determines who we hang around with. It determines how we talk, how we look, how we act. Men go to the gym so that they can have a chiseled body so that women can ogle at them. That's what our world tells us that relationship is about. We go on YouTube and learn how to do our brows and our eyes and our nose because we want to cover up what we think is ugly so that someone else will tell us that we look good because of the makeup that isn't really us. Why are we allowing these kind of shallow appetites lead our everyday life when God's discipline often gives us boundaries as to what those appetites are supposed to be? You see, just a few verses later in the message version, Deuteronomy 8 verses 11, it says this, Make sure you don't forget God, your God, by not keeping His commandments, His rules and regulations that I command you today. Make sure when you eat and are satisfied, build pleasant houses and settle in. See your herds and flocks flourish and more and more money come in. Watch your standard of living going up and up. Make sure you don't become so full of yourself and your things that you forget God, your God. Why is there a testing and why are there boundaries? It's because God desires to prosper you. Notice that, that, that Moses said to the people, make sure when you flourish, when you flourish, Make sure when you have your nice houses, when your standard of living is going up and up, God is not in the business of keeping you miserable. He is in the business of seeing you flourish, but He also wants to make sure that that flourishing is not going to kill you. That we become so full of ourselves and our things. Jesus teaches us that life does not consist in an accumulation of things. But yet so many of us are chasing that in our lives. We are chasing money. We are chasing security. We are chasing a big bank account. We are chasing a bigger house. We are chasing a bigger car. We are chasing more friends and and more relationships and, and more sex and more booze and more of all those things when life does not consist in any of them. They might be the icing on the cake, 
but it's not the cake. Many of us have just got a whole puddle of icing that we're chasing after when God is saying, I've got something more for you. Well, let's go back to Matthew. Let's go back to what we were talking about because I want to tie these two passages together. Jesus says that if anyone wants to follow me, he needs to deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. I used to struggle with this verse, particularly because it says pick up your cross. It doesn't say pick up my cross. Notice that. Jesus doesn't ask any of us to be anyone else's saviors. Notice that. We're not supposed to be going around saving anyone else and dying on a cross and shedding our blood so that someone else has salvation. We don't have that power, but we are meant to pick up our cross. That's where I had a little bit of a problem with this verse because at that point in time, Jesus hadn't died yet. He hadn't been crucified yet. So does, do those disciples actually know what this cross is meant to be? To them, picking up their cross literally just means dying and excruciating death. And that's where the whole verse actually just says, if anyone wants to follow me, they deny themselves and die an excruciating death and follow me. That doesn't make any sense, does it? But then it started to make sense when I started to think about discipline and appetites. Notice what Jesus said to Peter just a few verses ago before he talks about denying yourself. He had just explained, and, and when it says that Jesus explained that he must die, I, in my mind, think that Jesus is actually saying, now that you understand that I'm the Messiah, understand that the Messiah isn't coming with an army to overthrow the Romans, but the Messiah instead is going to die on the cross for people's sins so that salvation can come through. He explained the method of death and probably why he was going to die. And yet when he explained his way of living his life and God's plan, Peter pulls him aside. The one who just said out of his lips, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And he pulls him aside and says, you will never die like that. How did Jesus respond to him? He doesn't say, oh, don't be silly. I know you love me, but it's okay. I know what I'm doing. No, no, no. Jesus actually says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in your mind the concerns of God, but the concerns of man. Peter was concerned about being able to continue this amazing adventure he was having with Jesus, where crowds would come and follow Jesus, where there would be miracles on a daily basis, where there would be intimate teaching and fellowship with Jesus. That's the kind of life that I would love. I wouldn't want that to stop. Would any one of us want that to stop? Whenever you're hungry, Jesus kind of just says, oh, just throw your net over there and we'll get some fish. Whenever you're running low on money, you say, oh, go to, I don't know why it's always fish, but get that fish, it's got a coin in his mouth. Or you see someone dead, you say, oh, just bring him Jesus, he knows what to do with that. It's like, get up. Someone's got lameness, can't walk, get up. Someone's got blind eyes, see again. Imagine living that on a daily basis. Peter did not want that to stop. But why he didn't want that to stop is because he was filled with man's concerns. He was filled with man's concerns. And because he was filled with man's concerns, he could not be filled with God's concerns. 
See, this is what I realized about the Christian life, the life, the abundant life that God has for us. Life is about emptying. It's not about emptiness. It's about emptying. It's about emptying ourselves of human concerns, our human appetites, our human hungers and our human thirsts for the things that we think are going to fulfill and instead allowing ourselves to be filled with God's concerns. Because when we are filled with God's concerns, we understand where He is leading us better. We see things from a different point of view instead from a human point of view. Do you know why you're anxious? Do you know why you are worried about how tomorrow is going to be? It's because you are filled with human concerns. Even in the midst of this pandemic at this point in time, Christians, when we take on the concerns of God, this just begins to look insignificant. I love what Pastor Ian said last week. When you begin to worship God and magnify God, your problems become the right size. What used to take up all of your mind, take up all of your sleep, take up all of your concern, take up all every waking moment, see it for what it is. It's a human concern that shouldn't concern us because we are more than human. We are sons and daughters of God and we get to live in a higher way. I want to go one last time back to Numbers. We've just covered Numbers 21 and in Numbers 22 to 24, if you have the time, go read it for yourself. I didn't put it up because it's three chapters long. But right where the Israelites were, in this valley space, they had no idea what was taking place on the mountaintops around them. You see, they were in Moabite territory, a people group called the Moabites. And their king, King Balak, was actually really worried about the Israelites. He was worried that these guys were going to be able to take over his land. And so what he did is that he summoned a soothsayer so that this soothsayer would be able to curse the Israelites. I don't know how this is supposed to work, but apparently the soothsayer knew God. I don't know how. This is weird. This is a bit of a whack story in here. Uh, but, but this soothsayer, his name is Balaam. And so Balak pays Balaam to come to this high points where, around where the Israelites were. And he says, curse them for me and I will pay you. And Balaam says to Balak, I can only utter what God utters, which is like, okay, weird. But he wanted to get paid. That's what he wanted. And so he still went. And three times, they went to three different positions. And every time, instead of cursing the Israelites, Balaam pronounces a blessing. King Balak was like furious with Balaam. He said, I've called you to curse them to call down God's curses on them because whoever you curse stays cursed. And I want them to be cursed so that when my army comes through, they will wipe these Israelites out. He, Balak, did not dare to attack the Israelites unless he knew that they were cursed by God. And you know what? It made me think. 
with all the whinging and the whining that the Israelites were doing along their journey. We just read about it. They called God's food miserable. There is no greater insult than for someone to tell you that your food is miserable. If you come to my house and even if I just make you a plain toast, you better not say that it's miserable because I will kick you out of my house. But they complained to God saying that his food is miserable. And, and so if I was God, I'll be like, maybe a little curse will do, right? Why should I bless these people who are cursing me? Why should I bless the people who have got no gratitude inside of them? Why should I bless the people who are so narrow-minded, caught up in fear, caught up in doubt, caught up in going back to Egypt? But every time Balaam was about to pronounce a curse, all that came out was blessing. These are a chosen people of God. These people are going to prosper. Every step that the Israelites take will be blessed. They will have victory upon victory upon victory because God is on their side. And this was happening on the mountaintops while the Israelites were grumbling about a lack of food. I'm wondering how many of us caught up with our human concerns uh, in this space where like God is not providing for me when God is fighting for you on the mountaintops, pronouncing a blessing for you. I wonder how many of us are saying God doesn't care for me and doesn't know what I need when God is fighting battle after battle after battle. When I was reading this, it made me think how many times has God stopped a battle from taking place in my consciousness? He even stopped it before I knew about it. The Israelites had no knowledge that a battle was taking place, but yet God was still fighting for them. They weren't worshiping God in that moment. They weren't sacrificing to God in the moment. They weren't giving God any thanksgiving. They were grumbling against God, and yet God still said, you are my precious possession. You are gonna flourish and there is gonna be a victory. You see, when we concern ourselves with human things, temporary things, it fills us to the point where we can't see that God is doing something so much greater. It stops us from entering into the promised land because right on the cusp of our breakthrough, right on the cusp of us receiving what God has for us, we say, no, 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 no. It's too hard to take that last step. How many of us are stopping ourselves because we don't have the right appetite for the right things? You know, this morning we can get the band up I want you to know that God is fighting for you. I want you to know that even without you knowing it, without you being conscious of it, God is fighting for you. Even though your circumstances might not look like it, God is fighting for you. Even though there are things that you feel that you lack and there are things that you feel that you don't have and there are things that you greatly desire that is not coming your way, God is still fighting for you. And when we start to empty ourselves of human concerns, what does Jesus say? Do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will take care of itself. Look at the birds of the air. Your God looks after them. Look at the flowers of the field. Look how God clothes them. How much you then, a son and daughter of God. Life is going to bring us concerns. We choose whether we go after human concerns or after God's concerns. We choose whether we have 
and chase after shallow prosperity or we chase a deep prosperity. We choose whether we are getting fed along the journey and having full stomachs on the journey or maybe we can save it till we get to the promised land. And a little bit of hardship, a little bit of discipline around my appetites along the way is a good thing because my God loves me and He knows what is best for me. Maybe it's time for me to stop thinking about when my next meal is going to be. Maybe it's time for me to stop thinking about when my next relationship is going to be. Maybe it's time for me to stop thinking about when my next paycheck is going to be. Maybe it's time for me to stop thinking about when God is going to provide that for me and start to see that God is already providing, that His promises are yes and amen. And I want to be pursuing those things rather than the things of this world. I've learned that every single step on my way, every promotion that has come into my life, I've always thought that I was ready for it. I thought I was ready for parenthood and then Sam came into my life and I realized what little monsters they can be. They have got lungs the size of elephants. Who gave them lungs that size? And we, we, we learned this from the child health nurse. Infants, right? The back cavity of their mouth is larger than adults. So they have got greater resonance, which means they scream louder than adults. And so I have this little whinging bundle of joy on my shoulder screaming at me. And, I, and there have been moments over the last few weeks where I've gone, do I actually know what I'm doing? I can't, I don't, I don't have this, I can't do this. When I became a pastor, I thought, uh, this is a story of my life, I, I'm always overconfident and maybe that's not your story, maybe you're underconfident and that's the other way around where you say you can't before you even start, but for me I start and then I go like, what in the world am I doing? Why did I say yes to God? And I've had to change so often my appetites, so often my desires. One of the greatest Ways that Beck and I have gotten peace in difficult times with Sam. It's only been four weeks, guys. Four long and amazing weeks. Is that we go, we are not here to shush Sam up. Even though that's what I would really want right now. I'm not here to have a quiet baby. My whole goal of fatherhood, even though right now I don't have the result that I want, a calm baby, I have a crying one in my ear. My goal is not a quiet baby. My goal is a baby that knows that he's loved, that knows that his needs as best as possible, mom and dad are going to meet. I've had to change my appetites. I have had to become better at taking a crying baby. And you don't learn how to take a crying baby until you have a crying baby. You can read all the books, and I did read a fair few. I mean, I'm glad that I did a lot of reading and research because it's helped in many other ways, just not in calming a baby down. That is just a practical, okay, this worked, okay, yeah, cool. But I hope that that's just a little picture for you. When I planted Lyft, I had an appetite for a big church. I wanted our church to grow rapidly. I did. I thought that that would give me a sense of effectiveness. It would give me a sense of achievement on this planet. But as our church didn't grow according to the way that I wanted it to, I got really upset with God. What is this miserable church? I wouldn't say about you. 
I just won it three times of you guys around the hall, 499 to be exact. I just wanted more. So why aren't you providing God? Where are those people supposed to come from? But over time, God began to put on my heart, is it a big church that you want or a healthy church? Is it a big church that you want or a church that is living out my purposes? And I started to realize that my appetites don't always match up with God. And if I'm to follow Jesus, I need to deny myself. I need to crucify myself on the cross, on my cross, not His cross, on my cross. What does that mean? It means that sometimes crucifying certain things in me, certain appetites in me is difficult. It is excruciating for me to give up certain dreams. But they're not God dreams, they're my dreams. And when I lay them down, God begins to put new dreams God begins to put His dreams. I believe that there are some people in this room who are so disgruntled, so disillusioned with life because you think that you have never got what you thought that you were supposed to get. And you've got all those dreams and you've got all those hopes and they are weighing you down because you still haven't got them. And this morning, God is saying there needs to be an exchange that takes place because you're not getting life right now. All you're getting is worry. All you're getting is concern, but start to change, start to empty yourself of bad concerns, of human concerns, and start to take on God's concerns. That is discipleship. That's part of your discipleship. This morning, can we just stand? I just want us to have a a moment. What is that thing that is causing you concern this morning? What is that thing that is weighing you down? Is that thing linked to a God dream or is it linked to a human dream? Is that thing linked? Is that grade? Is that relationship? Is that finance? Is that house? Is that car? Is that trip? I don't know. What is it that is weighing you down? Is that lifestyle? Is it something that comes from God or is it something that just bubbles up from within? This morning, why don't you just begin to lay it down and begin to see that God is and continues to fight for you. On those mountaintops where people are trying to take shots at you, your enemies that you don't even know about, God is covering you. Every eye closed, every head bowed. God, I pray that you begin to let us know the concerns that come from you and the concerns that come from within. I pray that God, that we are able to empty ourselves of human concern, that you can bring in deeper, more meaningful, more fulfilling desires and dreams. I pray that our concern is for the things from you, God. I pray that our lives is about bringing your kingdom wherever we go. I pray that our lives is about carrying your peace wherever we go. I pray that our lives is about carrying your hope wherever we go into a world that needs light, into a world that needs hope, into a world that needs peace. I pray that you are bringing more into our lives and 
And God, I pray that every anxiety, every worry, every fear begins to be released in the name of Jesus. Because as we look to you, the author and finisher of our faith, we do not need to worry. We do not need to be anxious because you are fighting for us. You are providing for us. You are opening doors that no man can shut. You are bringing us a deep prosperity that, that floods our soul, that brings us peace. I thank you, Jesus. Come on, church. Why don't we just begin to worship? As we worship, we magnify Him. As we worship, we begin to see God clearer in this moment. Why don't you raise your hands as a sign of respect, as a sign of honor, as a sign of surrender to God, saying that, God, I want to meet with you this morning. Come on, church. Why don't we begin to worship? We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.